If you're visiting, I see some faces here that uh, I don't know, and I always love that. My name is Brian Habig. I'm one of the pastors here. It's Tim Udodge, another pastor here. And uh, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and as I've mentioned all through this, all through this Advent, you know, uh, downtown Prez, we don't follow the church calendar super closely, but we kind of hit the high points, you know, and we hit Easter and Christmas. And so these four Sundays before Christmas, we take time out from what I'm preaching through, and we look at things related to the incarnation, and that's just the theological term for God becoming man. That's what we celebrate at, uh, at Christmas. So I want to finish that out really uh, by focusing on one verse, and I've got three verses in this passage. I'm in 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14, but I'm really just going to focus on that last part, which is uh, verse 16. You know, if you ask someone about my age to quote the, uh, the, the preamble to the Constitution, like, do you know how the, the Constitution begins? What you might hear someone my age say would be, we the people, in order to form a more perfect union. You see, what we're singing is Schoolhouse Rock. <laughs> now, you may be of an age where you don't know what Schoolhouse Rock was. This was probably the high watermark of 1970s cultural achievement. It was these little uh, cartoon shorts. They were in between Saturday morning cartoons, like during the commercials. And they taught grammar and math and history, and they were fantastic. But it's funny. Um, about the only reason that I can, I can quote most of the preamble is because I, from singing it when I was a kid, and just, it, it got in me. When you sing things when you're little, they really stick. Um, think about this. I was, I was struck by this two weeks ago when we had lessons and carols. I was sitting on this side, and most of the people I could see to my left, I didn't know. They were visitors, family, you know, um, not, not members of our church. Somehow security had not stopped them at the door, and they got in. So, But I, I, was, I was watching them, and we, we got to, um, we end with the hymn that we started with this morning, O Come All You Faithful, and we, we sang that verse that we just sung a little while ago, uh, True God of True God, Light from Light Eternal. Uh, son of the Father, begotten, not created. And now we've sung that just about every year that we've, we've had, you know, Christmas at Downtown Prose. But it just struck me, we are singing pretty much phrases of the Nicene Creed. And that is one of the most ancient Christian creeds. So we're singing this stuff that the church had to, like, just uh, grapple with and, and debate and, and study the Scriptures about. But it's turned into this, and it's not... These aren't rhyming lines, but we're singing a creed. And the more you'd sing it, what would happen? The more it would get in your heart, the more you'd remember it. Uh, Pretty much New Testament scholars agree that this verse that we're going to focus on in our passage is is something like a cross between a little creed and a little hymn. It's either a little, just really small hymn by itself, or it's a stanza of a larger hymn, but it's, it's, it's like a cross between a creed in a hymn. Real quick word about the context, and I'm going to read it. This is from the New Testament letter to Timothy, the, uh, Paul's, the Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy. He's a pastor. He's in Ephesus. And uh, here's what Paul says. You're going to hear this when I read it. He says, Timothy, I, the reason I'm writing to you is I want you to understand how people are supposed to behave in church. Boy, there's, there's, there's a lot of ground to cover. You know, how should you behave? In church, And then he kind of says it again. He says, look, I'm going to tell you the mystery 
of godliness. Now, what is it to be godly? To be godly is to be like God. Now, wow, he, he's slow to anger. To be slow to anger yourself is to be godly. Uh, God loves you tenaciously when we're not lovable. To be godly would be to love other people that way when they're not lovable to us. Man, so I, all kinds of backgrounds here spiritually, and I, I don't want to assume how you think or feel, but uh, you know, I think a lot of people in this room would say, well, I'd love to be godly, but how do you get there? How do I be the kind of person that's not an embarrassment in church, but maybe like would actually draw someone to a church? Paul's going to tell us, and he's going to tell us through this little, this little song about Jesus. 1 Timothy 3, beginning in verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, the things that we celebrate when we come together um, this morning are the things that we can celebrate any Sunday and any day of the week, but it does give us joy to think about our brothers and sisters, um, old men and women, very, very young children and babies, all over the world thinking about the Incarnation and singing about it and learning about it and delighting in it and remembering it, and applying it. And Father, as part of your church around the world, we want to participate in that. So please open our ears and our hearts to hear you, especially we who long to be godly but see how we're not. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, I was on the phone with a friend of mine, and uh, he's a pastor in another state. He's not around here. And he was telling me about just a tough situation he's, he's got with a family in his church. And he didn't use names or anything like that, but was just, you know, processing this over the phone. And he said, uh, <clears throat> this, this couple have four children. The, the children are all grown now. They're adults. And these parents raise these children in a very, very intentional, um, instructive way about how to apply the Bible almost like a, a methodology of how to live the Christian life. So, you know, this is how we do home life, and this is how we do work, and this is what you wear. This is how you dress. This is the kind of music that, that we listen to, and here are our biblical reasons for doing that. So very intentional, very focused. Long story short, uh, my friend said, you look up, all four children have walked away from Christianity. And the marriage of the parents is awful. And, uh, man, that makes you think, doesn't it? I mean, that, it's like a cautionary tale because it may have been that go back 25 years ago and if we were watching this family, we would think, man, they, they are so focused. They are so intentional. 
Uh, I need to get in gear about reading the Bible with my family. I need to get in gear about praying together as a family. And those are great things to do. But they were very intentional. They were very, uh, had a real rigid methodology. And we look up and there's just kind of wreckage. Now, we could use all kinds of examples like that, but it's just one of those things that makes you go, like, I, again, I don't want to speak for you, but but it, it would be appropriate for a Christian to say, I want to be godly. It would be appropriate for a parent or a grandparent to say, I want the next generation or the next generation to be godly, but how do you do that? And here's the thing. Paul explicitly says in this passage, here's how... You have that. He loves the word mystery. And when Paul uses the word mystery, he's using it in a cultural context where there are world religions, especially in Greek culture, that talk about mystery. But for the Greeks, mystery would be, ah, this is this thing that you can learn about in this religion and only, you know, like only a few of us really get it. Only a few of us have the knowledge. When Paul talks about a mystery, he means here's this thing that was, that was latent, until Christ came, and now it's an open secret. I'm telling you the mystery. And just for no extra charge, some New Testament scholars have looked at this where he says, great is the mystery of godliness. And they've wondered if he says it that way because of where Timothy works. I mentioned that Timothy, that he writes this letter to, is a pastor in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world because of the temple of Artemis. Diana. And one of the things that her worshippers said is, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And it's almost like Paul takes that and says, yeah, great indeed is the mystery of godliness. And let me tell it to you. And then he tells you this song. He quotes this song. Um, Now, as I studied this, oh my goodness, this is the kind of thing that New Testament scholars just flip out about and write books about. You know, do the, do the first three phrases go together and the next two phrases? Or how does it, here's how I'm going to handle it. And I, this seemed to be the best conclusion I saw. The first two parts go together, the next two parts go together, and the next two parts to get, go together, which gives us a three-point sermon, which means it's true. <laughs> okay? So that's, that's the route I'm going. But no, I do, think, I do think that works. This is about the Messiah. This is about Jesus Christ. So here's how I want to look at it. The first two phrases... The revelation of the Messiah. Second part, witness to the Messiah. Third part, response to the Messiah. Revelation of Messiah, witness to Messiah, response to Messiah. All right, first off, the revelation of Messiah. What's the first phrase? Again, I'm down there at the bottom, verse 16. He was manifested in the flesh. Now, this is what we think about and sing about and just kind of park in during Advent, is that the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, the Son of God, became man. You may or may not know this, but uh, almost 50 years ago, the Charlie Brown Christmas special almost never saw the light of day for a couple of reasons. I'll tell you what one of the reasons should be, because I just watched it a couple of nights ago, is the mean girls in that show. Violet is awful in that show, but that was not one of the reasons. The two reasons were, you know, the, whoever the, the suits were, you know, at CBS, said it seems like it drags. Not a lot of, you know, there's no car chases or anything like that. And, um, but the big one was what Linus does. And what's the famous thing? 
is when just Charlie Brown is overwhelmed with, does anyone get Christmas? And Linus says, I can tell you what Christmas is about. Go, goes up on the school auditorium stage, you know, lights please. And he quotes Luke chapter 2. And he quotes it from the King James Version. Now think about watching this um, from a non-Christian perspective, whether that's skeptic, agnostic, Jewish, well, I mean, wh- wh- whatever. But think about hearing this is someone saying, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. In Greek, it's the word kurios, and that's a flexible term. That can mean anything from God to sir. But when an angel, when an archangel says that in Judea, you can bank on that means God. Yahweh, the God of the Bible. Unto you is born in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now just juxtapose those two terms. The Lord, the babe. And some of the earliest Christian heresies came from the fact that people could not hook those up. Some of the earliest, well, not really Christian, heresies related to Christianity was people could not deal with the fact that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob took on mortal flesh. And the New Testament screams that he did. That he did. He was manifest in the flesh. Revealed as both God and man. Now, then, the, then the little creed, little hymn says this. He's vindicated by the Spirit. Vindicated by the Spirit. And what does that mean? Uh, the Holy Spirit is all in the ministry of Jesus, and especially when He shows up. When you read the first two chapters of Luke, which is what we quote during Advent, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, He's all over the place. But I want to read something else that Paul wrote. We actually looked at this at the beginning of our series on Romans. This is one of the first things he says about the Messiah. Romans 1 verse 4, that that Christ, quote, was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness, Holy Spirit, by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me read that again that He was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. And what is that saying? The people who heard Him, you know, in His public ministry said, no one ever spoke like this man. The people who saw the miracles, some were changed by it, but everyone was amazed by it. But there are all these people around the world that didn't see those things. I mean, we haven't seen those things. But what do we have? We have this ultra vindication from God by the power of His Holy Spirit in raising the Messiah from the dead. And you read the book of Acts and the resurrection is all over the book of Acts. When people went out all over the world to talk about this Messiah, what they talked about was what He did, but that He was dead and He's alive now. God's vindication. The revelation that No, you did not misunderstand me. He is the one. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. Seal of approval from God. The revelation of the Messiah. Witness to the Messiah. Um, He was seen by angels. This seems to be the phrase that New Testament scholars aren't quite sure what to do with. 
And I, let me tell you this. Sometimes I stand up here. In fact, usually where I want to park when I'm up here is to say, um, here's what this text is clearly saying. Harder to do this on this phrase, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give the preface. Here's what I think this means. I think. I know it's biblical, but I think this is what he's talking about. But before Jesus came, what was the most important physical object in the world? It's the Ark of the Covenant. The tabernacle was the tabernacle. The temple was the temple. The Holy of Holies was the Holy of Holies because of the Ark of the Covenant. No other object like it. It, it wasn't God, but it was where God revealed <clears throat> His unique, located presence on the earth. And in Exodus 25, when God says, here's how you build it, He's very specific about something. It's a golden box with a golden lid, but there's a decoration on the top. And it's two cherubim, two angels. And he's very specific about what they look like. He says, they face each other. Their wings overshadow the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. But they don't look at each other. They're faced downward looking at what? The lid. What is the lid? The lid is the mercy seat. And you might say, this is the most important spot in the world. Not just the object. The mercy seat, geographically, was where the holiness of God Holy, holy, holy. As it were, comes in contact with the sinfulness of Israel. And of all the the decorations for God to give, you, you, you don't just have angels. They're not looking up. They're not looking at each other. They're not looking out. They're staring at the lid. They're staring at the mercy seat. And the Apostle Peter actually sort of takes that image and he says in one of his letters in the New Testament that the mysteries of the gospel are things that angels long to look into. And that what the hymn seems to be saying is this, that these these sculpted, crafted angels for centuries have been looking at this lid almost to say, how can this work? How can this God that we've seen who cannot abide sin love and commit himself to and live in the midst of these sinful people. And they stare at this thing for centuries. And Paul quotes this hymn to say, they finally, the real angels finally saw the answer to that question. And the answer was a person. It's the Messiah. They witness to what they've seen. In his humiliation and in his exaltation, they saw it all. And it was proclaimed around the world by people. Um, You know, sometimes we read the New Testament, and to us it seems like the gospel's only gone to this very little part of the globe, and it really hasn't gone around the world yet. But even in the New Testament, you get this language of this good news has gone all over the world. It's gone to all kinds of people groups. It's gone to cities where it just permeates that area even in the lifetime of the Messiah. And Paul had directed, believe me, first-hand experience with, it has been proclaimed in places that weren't just saying, boy, we would love to learn about a different God. Well, how can we drop our idols and worship the God that you want to tell us about? And the good news went in there, 
and it landed. Now, that's, that's, the, that's the last part of the hymn, is the response to the Messiah. What does it say? As it was proclaimed among the nations, not just the nation of Israel, but nations. It says that uh, the gospel was believed on in the world. Now, I'm going I'm to jump out of the first century and jump back into the 21st century. You may or may not have heard these kind of statistics before, but just just think about this. Around 90% of the Muslims in the world live in one part of the world. They live in the Middle East and in Africa and in South Asia. About 90% of the Muslims in the world. Over 80% of the Buddhists in the world live in East Asia. Over 90% of the Hindus in the world live in one nation, India. Okay, now, so just think about those, those batches. By contrast, and I've got, to, I've got to look at my notes here, about 25% of the Christians in the world live in Europe. About 25% of the Christians live in Central and South America. About 20% live in Africa. About 15% live in Asia. And 12 to 15% live in North America. Now, one British scholar, this is, this is quintessential British understatement, looks at that data and he says, a guy named Richard Balcom, he says, almost certainly Christianity exhibits more cultural diversity than any other religion. And that seems to say something about it. That's how the Brits would communicate about that. Very careful, very understated, but right on, right, is that, man, this thing has been believed on in places where you would never dream that it would be believed on. And it doesn't call you as an individual to become more Western. Nor does it call you as an individual to become more Eastern. And it doesn't call your people group or your country to become like the other hemisphere or like the other race. It lets you be you as it transforms you. And it's doing that all over the world. And it's not just batched in one place. (laughs) Believed on in the world in a way that no other world religion is. But there's this... So that's people all over the world respond. And that was in the lifetime of the... I mean, they were singing this in the first century. This is being believed on in the world. Like, can you believe Philippians? Believe this? No, I can't, but they do. Non-Israelites, Gentiles. Can you believe Romans are believing this? No, I can't believe it. Amazing. But there's the last response, and this is the most important response to the Messiah. Taken up in glory. What's that talking about? The ascension. And I once heard a really, really smart church historian say that ascension day used to be as big a deal or bigger than Christmas in Europe after the Reformation, the celebration that everything the Messiah did perfectly, everything he had achieved on behalf of sinners, all the ways that he was the great high priest, not going into the Ark of the Covenant, but taking his own blood into the presence of our great God in heaven, that he's taken everything he is and everything he's accomplished for his people into the throne room of God, and it's right there. It's right there, 
and it stays there. And you don't ever have to worry about it. Now, what is the application? What is the so what? All right, now go back to this. Paul says, Timothy, young pastor. And as I read 1 Timothy, I kind of think he was an introvert, which gives me hope. I think he struggled with timidity, which gives me hope. Paul's kind of always calling him to arms, you know. And he says, look, now I want you to know how people should behave in church. The church. And a pastor needs to know that. And I want you to know the mystery. I'm telling you the secret of godliness. So here's the secret. Here's how people should behave. Does he list actions? What does he give you? The theological term would be he gives you Christology. He gives you theology of Jesus Christ, who he is and what he did. Um, uh, I don't know if this will land with you the way it landed with me, but I'm going to share this because it landed with me. A friend of mine was talking with his preacher and he had a relationship where he could say what, what I'm about to quote to you, but this preacher was frustrated that people in the church weren't praying and, and that we need to be a praying church. And so he was about to launch into a sermon series about praying. And my friend said to him, please don't do that. And this is funny because this friend of mine loves prayer and like he wants the church to He's not anti-prayer. He said, look, don't do, and look, it's not wrong to do a sermon series on prayer. I taught this fall on the Lord's Prayer. We're pro-prayer, okay? And we vote. But he said, look, why don't you preach on the power of God? Why don't you do a sermon series on the power of God till people just can't help but pray? And I, that really made an impression on me. Instead of... Let me preach and teach on the behavior. Let me preach and teach on the thing that's true, that if it goes into your heart, it will birth prayer. That is exactly what Paul is doing. Instead of saying, all right, let me tell you about how to have a godly small group. Or let me tell you how to handle your finances in a godly way. And all of those are legitimate things to teach on. But he says, no, that's not the secret. That's the behavior. What is the secret? The secret is Christ. Who He is. What He did. I mean, I bet you anything that there are more than a few people in this room right now, and whether or not you would use this word, you feel like, I need renewal. I am tired from 2014. I am tired from this fall. I am tired from Christmas already. I can't say it out loud, but doggone it, I am. I'm tired of unemployment. I'm tired of loneliness. I'm tired of what my marriage is like, or I'm tired of not being married, whatever. I am tired in my bones. I'm tired of church. I'm tired of feeling so spiritually flat. And it's so tempting when you hear that, to want to like jump in and go, okay, let's get you on a renewal program where you're going to enlist the things that you've got to do to be renewed. Versus saying, when is the last time you sung a song to Jesus? About Jesus. 
in a sense, I'm telling you a thing to do. I was once in the car with an older man. We were driving to a meeting together, and uh, he's a Christian, and he said, you know what song I love? He said, I was singing it to my children recently, and it's a song called, um, Oh, How I Love Jesus. And it starts off, there is a name I love to hear. I love to sing its worth. Sounds like music in my ear, the sweetest name on earth. I mean, just kind of a just sweet little song about, about, it's just about Jesus. And he said, can we sing that? And I, yeah. And so I'm driving. So we're going down this interstate and we start singing. He cried. And what is it? He's not doing anything practical. But what is he doing? He's letting it go into his heart. And I will throw out an action, but but in trying to flesh this out, have you ever read through a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John? And if you have, when is the last time you have? And I'm not asking that to like set you up to scold you because I don't know the answer. But man, I know, I know, I know that churched people especially can live off old capital. Like I read it in high school. Or I read it in college. Wonderful. Um, But not so wonderful if you're now like 40 and haven't since then. Again, I'm not saying that to skull. I'm saying, what if you opened the Word of God? What if you read a gospel, just one, before December is over. You know, right now, I'm reading through the Gospel of John. I've read the Gospel of John a bunch of times. I'm not saying that in a showboaty way. I just have. I've preached through John. And multiple times as I'm reading through this, I'm going, I have no recollection that he said that. That's unbelievable that it's alive. The words have always been there, but there are these new surprises these new things to learn, these new things to see, and it's about Christ. That maybe the way for you to be renewed is not, well, I'm going to set these spiritual goals for 2015. Great to have spiritual goals unless they're your Savior, and then they're awful. Goals are awful saviors. Christ is an awesome Savior. Maybe maybe you're somebody that really struggles with... uh, People-pleasing? I mean, maybe there's one or two in here, I don't know, that struggle with people-pleasing. He said facetiously. And, um, and you just, you're just kind of on edge all the time about you're going to get something wrong. You're going to get something wrong and people are going to see it. Um, do you need to sit down with a therapist? Uh, possibly. Do you need to read a book about that? That could be great. I've recommended some. But, like, what if the ascension really got down in your heart? Because you know what the ascension is? Everything that you've screwed up, honestly, you don't know the half of it. It's worse. It's worse than you think. And the Messiah, for all who believe in Him, He took it all on Himself, and the wrath of God was satisfied. And you can know that because the Messiah ends it by saying what? It is, it is finished. Dies, is raised, and takes it all into heaven, and it's there for us. 
that if the ascension got into our bones, what we would know is, you know what? I can try things and I can make mistakes and I can fail because my security is in heaven. It's not in jeopardy. I can try things and I can make mistakes and I can fail and I can actually dream and have successes and failures because He is there for me. The the mystery of godliness. Let me end with this because this, to me, is an image to just sort of take home with you and I hope it's helpful to you. A friend of mine, I think he was quoting someone else but I'd never heard anyone else say this. He said, you know what? Here's what preaching is not and here's what preaching is. Preaching is not someone taking a glass and going to the ocean and then walking back to a group of people and standing in front of the group saying, this is the ocean. Preach The kind of preaching we need and want is when someone leads a group of people and says, that's the ocean. That's the ocean. And they see it. That's what this passage is. Is that Paul's not coming and saying, all right, now let's talk about your reading plan of the Bible for 2015. Great to have a reading plan. He's saying there is the ocean. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the secret. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, that this is true. And for the man or woman who is here this morning and really has never believed on the Messiah, would you give, would you give her true faith? Would you give him real belief and faith and trust? Lord, help us to see the Lord Jesus Christ in Your Word, to commune with You even at the table right now, and to be transformed. We ask this in Your name. Amen. Every week... um